invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Matthew chapter 1. In the Christmas season, uh, Lord, what would you have us to cover? Which There's so many things about the Christmas story, uh, about the theology of Christmas even, and where, where do we begin? And so uh, I think we're going to be doing kind of over the next couple of weeks, kind of a little bit of a series through Matthew chapter 1 and 2 uh, in regards to the Christmas story. And uh, so there's a song that uh, comes to my mind. Uh, it's it's kind of one of those songs when you do Christmas caroling and all that. You probably try to avoid this song. What song do you try to avoid when you do Christmas caroling? The 12 Days of Christmas, right? Because you just keep going on and on and on and you lose count, right? But anyways, uh, what is the middle part? What's the one refrain in the entire song of the five days of Christmas? There are what? Five golden rings. And up. No, no, no. <laughs> See, we get carried away with that one. All right. Oh, boy. Where do we go from here? Five golden rings. Five golden rings. And so when we talk about that, and, and maybe another time we'll look at the story of uh, the 12 days of Christmas. Actually, it's kind of an interesting story what each of the uh, the characters mean in that song. But nonetheless, uh, there's a passage of scripture here that I believe that we find five golden rings. And so where do we find that in the Christmas story? So here we are in Matthew chapter 1. And you're probably saying, Pastor, this is a really interesting passage to read, but uh, bear with me and I think I think you'll catch on quickly. It starts out in verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram. I know you're riveted already, right? And Ram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz of Rechab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And let's just skip down through several generations to verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So we're going to look today in this passage, in the genealogy of Jesus, five golden rings. As we look at here in the genealogy, and we kind of covered a little bit in these verses that we just looked at here, and uh, we're going to be looking at five golden rings, five people in this genealogy that stick out uh, in the family line of Jesus. I want to say a special thanks to my friend, uh, Dr. Charlie Dyer, uh, who his program, The Land and the Book, uh, on Moody Radio. It's heard nationally. Anyways, Charlie's a dear friend. And um, anyways, he wrote a little booklet on this a couple of years ago called Five Golden Rings, and where he kind of breaks this down. So uh, uh, several points that I'm bringing out are in his book, so I'm not, I'm not um, this isn't my own per se, but I, I want to give credit where credit's due. Uh, he's a good writer, and why, why we reinvent the wheel on this. And so anyways, so the question I have, though, as we begin here, how well do you know your family tree? Hmm. Think about that for a second. How well do you know your family tree? Uh, let's ask this question. How many generations can you go back and identify? How many know uh, your grandparents? Your great-grandparents? How many know your great-great-grandparents? How many know your great-great-great-grandparents? And Renee knows a hundred of them, right? Okay, all right. Um. There we go. Okay. 
um, in our family, uh, especially on my on my dad's side, uh, we can go back to around a thousand years uh, in Norway because of the infant baptism and the state church that kind of orchestrated that. Anyways, they kept a very good record of all that. And so on my dad's side, we can go back basically back to Leif Erikson and the Vikings. Uh, not Kirk Cousins, that's a different Viking. So, but nonetheless, um, on my mom's side, um, really I can only go back maybe about five generations at most. Uh, even with the help of Ancestry.com, things like that, uh, I was only able to go back probably about five or six generations. I actually did some research on my mom's side for a while, uh, a few years ago. But nonetheless, it's interesting. I think family, it's important to know where you've been, uh, where your family's been, and where you are, and even where you're going. Uh, but for most people, when you look at a family tree, here's the point of this. When you look at a family tree, it really is, it is, it looks like more of a skeleton in a way. Because why? We really don't know much about our ancestors. You might have a name, maybe where they lived. But other than that, you probably don't know a whole lot if you go back more generations. Maybe your grandparents, great-grandparents, you do. But when you start going back, all of a sudden, the information on your family probably gets a little bit fuzzy, a little bit unclear. And so... When we look at a family tree, it, it appears like almost like a skeleton. Like, where's the meat? Where, where's the beef of the, of, the, of the story? And so here's the thing. This is what I want to point out here is this, that we don't know much about our own ancestors. But here's the thing. We're looking here at the family tree of Jesus here in these verses. And to be honest with you, we are tempted to treat the family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 also like a skeleton. Here's names we can't pronounce. Okay, several times. All right. I like to say this when I was giving tours of our museum in Tennessee, talking about letting the Bible come alive, because for a lot of Christians, the Bible is a distant book. What do I mean by that? We read names we can't pronounce, places we don't know where they are, and customs we're not familiar with. And because of that, we are a little bit distant from the stories of the Bible and the people that are listed even here. And so for us, when we look at this, it's like a skeleton. It's not much to look at unless you just love studying skeletons, okay? All right? Some people might. God bless you. But for the average Joe, it's a skeleton, and you move on. Because why? We don't really know much about the, the tree itself. And so this is important as we understand that. So by taking a closer look at the genealogy of Jesus, let's put some meat on his family tree and see more deeply God's plan of redemption for the Jewish people, but also for the nations. So my question now, as you consider your family tree, where has your family been? And a deeper question, where is your family going? Let your family tree, this is my point here today, let your family tree be found in Jesus the Messiah as we consider today five golden rings. Who are these five golden rings? It's just interesting in the genealogy of Jesus, it starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that, we know those groups. We know Judah's a little bit and his brethren. We look at the 12 tribes. And then all of a sudden, there's names you just don't know. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, there's, uh, uh, there's Jesse, there's David, there's Solomon. Oh, we know that. Um, there's Hezekiah. There's Josiah. We, we, there's a couple of names that pop out if you're familiar with some of the Old Testament story. But there are five names that are listed here that are, I believe, five golden rings of Christmas. And those are actually five women. Five women are mentioned in this passage here. So I want to begin with the first one. We got five to go through. So these are, if you want to get more in depth, I, I urge you to read uh, Charlie Dyer's book on that. But nonetheless, let's start with the five golden rings. When we begin in verse three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
And then it says, Jacob begat Judas in his brother. That's verse 2. Judas, or that's Judah, not Judas Iscariot. Okay? Uh, the, anyways, we're talking about Judah. Remember, that was was a number three in the list, I believe, or four, or in the list of uh, the sons of uh, Jacob and Leah. And then J- Judas begot Perez and Zerah of Tamar. And Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram. So here we have, it's interesting, Judas begot Perez and Zerah of Tamar, or Tamar. Uh, Tamar, uh, Tamar means date, uh, like a sweet date in Hebrew, that's what it means. But nonetheless, we have Tamar here. And so it's interesting, who exactly is Tamar? So this is going to be very cursory today. Uh, so I invite you, you can take notes if you want, um, or if you want copies of mine, I'll be glad to give it to you. Or better yet, just get the book of Charlie Dyer. There we go. So with that in mind, who was Tamar? Tamar was actually a, a wife of one of Judah's sons. Uh, so you go back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 37, we are introduced to Joseph and his brethren. And we know in that chapter, that is when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he's gone to Egypt and to Potiphar's house. And, and then all of a sudden there's a break in the story. And in chapter 38, here comes this very interesting story of Judah, one of Jacob's sons, and this lady named Tamar. Ah, interesting story. And so... Tamar was, we believe she was a Canaanite lady who married one of Joseph's sons. And uh, anyways, the Bible says that uh, this son, Er was his name, he was so wicked that God slew him, that he, he took him out. And uh, so in those days, it was common for a, actually in some Jewish practices today, it still happens. It's called leveret marriage. And so the, the next son, if you will, would marry the widow of the of the one who died. And then all of a sudden you continue that family line in that way or the brother's name. So that's the idea. Well, the next son didn't do nearly as good either. And the Lord killed him. And then there's the third son. And uh, Judah says, well, not so fast. He's too young. And I guess he's saying, I don't want him to get killed either. So anyway, so he says, let's just wait a while. Well, you know what? Judah didn't keep his word. He was untrustworthy. Make a long story short. And so read chapter 38 and you'll see that. And so what happens is this, that Tamar says, Judah's not keeping his promise. And so it's interesting that she sets her out on the pathway, actually not very far from the Valley of Elah. If you know where the Valley of Elah is, that's the same place where David fought Goliath. Okay. And so she's sitting there at the wayside and she puts on the apparel of a harlot, of a prostitute. And there she basically offers her trade, if you will. And Judah happens to pass by. Well, make a long story short, because of that relationship, Judah... And her became, she became pregnant. And she became pregnant with these sons of Perez and Zerah, you find there in verse 3. And Perez was the firstborn. And so, anyways, it's interesting in that regard. She pretended to be a harlot to challenge Judah to keep his promise. She gave birth to twins, Perez the oldest. And we see here, very simply, that Perez is in the line of David. Okay? Because that's the next uh, person you have, significantly, is David after this. And so... It's interesting. So why then is Tamar included? This isn't a good story. If you look at, this is probably in a, 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 this is probably a chapter of the Bible you read to your kids at night or grandkids or Genesis 38. But if you read through it, it's, it's interesting. It breaks up the, of the flow of the story because if you go from chapter 37 of Genesis, chapter 39, there's like, it's like this story pops up out of nowhere. 
it's not needed in, in a sense, humanly speaking, but God put it there on purpose. Why is that? Why is Tamar included in that story and included here in Matthew 1? Basically to make a point. You see this, that Judas fa- or Jacob's family was in disarray. The brothers were fighting with each other. They hated uh, Joseph. Uh, There's so much that was going on. Jacob's family was in disarray. But what do we know through this? It's interesting that after that event in, in, in Genesis 38, it seems like Judah kind of wised up a little bit. Kind of all of a sudden became a little bit smarter and wiser in his delivery. Nonetheless, what happened was this, that Jacob, or excuse me, excuse me Joseph, what happened? Through that whole experience, God delivered his whole family to come to Egypt and preserve them, right? And he says, and Jacob, Joseph said this at the end of Genesis, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Okay, so that was the reason. Also, I think here's a bigger reason of this. We think it here, probably a Canaanite lady, in a dubious circumstance right here, she offers herself to Judah, and we know the story of this, but the, here's the point I see already in Matthew chapter 1, is this, to show that God can even work through the sinful actions of others to accomplish his plan of salvation for the world. That's what's happening here. God can work even through the sinful actions of Judah and Tamar. He can accomplish his plan of salvation for the world. It kind of goes with Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good for them that love God or them who are the called according to his purpose. So very important as we see this. So let's now skip. That's ring number one. Ring number two. We skip down to verse five. And Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab or Rahab. Okay. You remember Rahab? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came a tumbling down. Well, what happened before that battle took place? We know that there was two spies that went in to, to uh, Jericho to kind of see the city and all that. And it was Rahab that hid, hid them. Well, it's interesting. Who is Rahab exactly? Well, Rahab, number one, she's a Canaanite. Not Jewish, not Israelite. She's Canaanite. But oftentimes in the Bible, she is referred to as what? Rahab what? The harlot. All right, Rahab the prostitute. Man, there's a little theme going already in this, this line. So it's interesting that she's known as Rahab the harlot most of the time and is mentioned in the books of Joshua, Matthew, Hebrews, and the book of James. It's interesting, though, that Matthew's gospel never mentions her as the harlot, simply Rahab. It's interesting. Why is that? Let's talk a little bit more about Rahab. Well, first of all, she risked her life for secondhand information the Exodus. Remember, she said, we have heard what your God has done to the Egyptians. You know, that was about 40 years ago. And the people who had passed by, they told the story there and she heard that and she trembled. She feared the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so she risked her life for the two spies. So in that, her faith saved her physically, which led her to the role in the line of David. Interesting. She started out as a prostitute and became a mother of kings. Isn't that interesting? So I think this is important. We look at this here. Solomon begat Boaz of Rechab. It says here, it's interesting that Matthew does not refer to as a harlot because he, I like this. This is from uh, Dr. Dyer. Uh, he was not looking where Rahab was from, her background, but rather where she was going. So here's a good key point for us to consider as we think of this story, maybe your own family tree and your own family history, circumstances do not determine your destiny. Circumstances do not determine your destiny. 
Oh, yeah, you should have heard about Uncle So-and-so. That doesn't determine where you're going. You have the choice to change that. You really do, okay? So in that, let me wrap this up by saying on Rahab, that Rahab is really a reminder of what God can do with and through a person willing to put his or her faith in him. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? Rahab simply chose to follow God, even regarding her past. And God brought her into that line of David, and yes, even the Messiah. That's amazing. So we have two golden rings, Tamar and Rahab. Let's get to the next one. You know her, and that's found in the, also in verse 5. And so anyway, Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab, and, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth. Okay, Obed of Ruth. And so here is Ruth. So here's the next golden ring. What do we know about Ruth? N number one, I'm going to get this out of the way. She was not a prostitute, okay? <laughs> the story breaks a little bit here, okay? But what was she? She was a Moabite. And the Moabites were good guys or bad guys in the Bible? They were the bad guys. In fact, they were not allowed to come into the, the, the court of the sanctuary, for example. Uh, and so, but anyways, they were, they were enemies of Israel. But it's interesting what happens is that she was not your typical Moabite. Why was that? It's interesting. And I actually had a friend of mine. Um, actually, remember David Bennett with Silent Word Ministry? He was here for our missions conference. Uh, anyways, he actually messaged me this week asking, well, how does someone um, basically convert to, to being Jewish? Do they have to follow the religious law or can they just be Jewish like culturally and all that? And it says, well, it depends what era you're talking about. But I, we talked about Ruth actually in our discussion. And it's interesting that Ruth was originally married to Naomi's son in Moab. Okay. But she did not choose to follow the Lord God until what? She says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It wasn't until after her first husband died. It wasn't until after that, that she actually became a loyal follower of, of Jehovah. So here's the thing about this. God, and if you look at the story of Ruth, what an amazing transformation that took place in that family and specifically, specifically through Ruth and then through Boaz. So here's the point of Ruth's story. No matter what a person's family background or history may be, it cannot keep him or her from a relationship with God if that tr person truly wants to know him. Ruth, Ruth wanted to know God. And she saw that in Naomi. She saw that in her people. And God blessed her in a great way. And why do we say that? Because that they begat Obed and Obed begat Jesse. And then here we are in verse six. This is ring number four. And Jesse begot David, the king, and David, the king, begot Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Interesting. This is very interesting uh, wording in this verse here. So we see here it goes finally to David. So Ruth is, uh, well, let me go back. This is really interesting. We kind of miss this when we read the gospel story or when we read the, the Bible story here. Ruth, who was her mother-in-law? Ray, uh, no, well, actually going to be... Um, in a way, too, or we Rahab as well, okay, on that side. So it's interesting when you look at that genealogy there, uh, how that took place. But anyways, and then all of a sudden, she is the great-grandmother of David. So it's interesting how close-knit these, these families are. But here we come here that David, the king, begat Solomon. And it says of her that had been the wife of Uriah. So here, you, who is this person here in verse 6? Who is this woman? but her name is not mentioned. She is really the unknown hero 
in this story. How is it important for us to know the Old Testament and the New Testament together? It's important to know, know it if they fit hand in glove. Okay? So here is, is interesting here. She is the unknown hero. You think of your superheroes. What is the real name of Superman? Clark Kent, yes. Batman. Bruce Wayne, very good. Uh, Spider-Man. And we'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> but here we have, we have this, the wife of Uriah. Who is the wife of Uriah? It's almost like her superhero name. Well, anyways, her name is Bathsheba. We know that. And so, but here, here's something interesting about Bathsheba. And we're going to insert it here in the story. That she is the first woman in this genealogy mentioned who is not an, who is an actual Israelite. We have Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. They are not Israelites. They're not Jewish. Bathsheba is the first one, that is. It's interesting. Now, we know the story that took place between David and Bathsheba, the adultery that happened and the consequential murder of Uriah. It was a heinous and terrible situation that took place uh, there in that account. But why is she mentioned in this way? Uh, and this is something to consider. Perhaps she is mentioned because of, not because of her name, but because of Uriah. Uriah's name in Hebrew means, my light is the Lord. My light is the Lord. And what do we know about Uriah? Uriah was a Hittite, which is, were they the good guys or bad guys in the Bible? Again, they're an enemy of Israel. Absolutely. But it's interesting here that he was, Uriah was a man who followed the God of Israel from his heart, not merely because of his heritage. It's, it's, it's very important that we see that. There's a lot of people who say they're Christians because, oh, yeah, that's what my grandparents did or that's what my family did, whatever. Uh, they can go a family tree or whatever. But really, there's no substance to that. But he chose to be a follower of God from the, from the heart. If you look at Uriah's life and his testimony, even how he stood firm in the midst of whatever David was trying to get him to do, he was very just in what he did. So why is it mentioned this way? Here's some food for thought of this, that... Bathsheba's mentioned kind of in the background, kind of like this, this hidden figure, if you will, talking about Uriah. Because why? Bringing Uriah into the story is this. He is not Jewish. He's not an Israelite. Here's the point. We have David, who is the great king of Israel, but there will become one, the son of David, who will be the king over the Jews. But here's the point. Jesus will not just be king of the Jews, but he'll be king of the whole earth including the Hittites, including Uriah and his family. So this is a very important thing. So Matthew reminds us, the reason this is included, I believe, is because of the dubious stories that surround Israel's King David. King David was not perfect by any means. But why now is Uriah or the wife of Uriah mentioned? I think this is important to understand that God cares for everyone in the world, not just Jewish people, but for Canaanites, Moabites, Hittites, and the rest of you Gentiles. Okay? Praise God for that. He cares for you. And another thing I think we see that in this story, and even the way that Matthew mentions it here in verse 6 is this, that in the midst of this horrific sin that took place in David's palace, that God's grace is greater than our sin. That's what we see. I think we should be reminded as children of God that when we sin, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we see that through David, that he exactly did that. He confessed his sins before God. He said, against thee and thee only have I sinned, done this wickedness in thy sight. Uh, he, he said, you know, to cleanse him, to purge him. And so what a tremendous testimony that is. So this is important as we see here, the skeleton of the genealogy of Jesus is starting to have a little bit of meat on it now. But let's now come to the, there's four golden rings. Let's get to the fifth golden ring. And that's the last lady that's mentioned here. We skip down several generations and we, now we get to verse 16 into somewhat familiar territory. Verse 16 says this, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Wow, what a blessing. So here we have the fifth ring, Mary. Mary. She is so different from the others. What do we know about that? It's interesting. I want to, first of all, kind of highlight one thing that's of interest is that when you look at how all the other women are described, let's go back to verse three, for example. Judas begot Pharaoh's of Tamar. Okay. Verse five, Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab. Uh, Boaz begot Obed of Ruth. And then David begot uh, Solomon of Bathsheba. You notice the word order there, but when it comes here to verse 16, about Mary, it's mentioned differently. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. The word order, remember before it was be father, son, and then the wife or the mother. Here we have, there's the, the father or the, the man and then the woman. And then from her was born Jesus. Because why? In When you tell your story, I am the son of Roger and Shirley Broughton. I go by my dad's name. But here's the important thing. Jesus is mentioned here of whom was born Jesus. Here's a very important thing. The word order changes here to emphasize, I believe, that, G, uh, that Joseph is the legal father of Jesus, but not the biological father of Jesus. Okay, this is, this is an interesting detail. Uh, we have to understand that Jesus, the word became flesh, that he was virgin born. Okay, and so this is very important, especially as we get, and we'll get into the next couple of weeks of the significance of the virgin birth uh, in that. But we see a couple things also about Mary, and this is really important. What do we know about Mary? Now, in, in Matthew's gospel here, and even in the next few, in the rest of chapter one, there's really not a whole lot. We, we actually know more about Joseph than we do about Mary in Matthew chapter one. Where do we get our information on Mary more so? It's from a different gospel. That would be Luke's gospel. Okay, chapters one and two specifically there. But a couple of things we know about that. Just think in your mind, in Luke chapter one, for example, that Mary had a godly character. She was a chaste woman. She was a virgin, had never been with a man before. And also, what does the Bible mention of her? The angel came to her, Gabriel said, what? Thou that art, what? Highly favored. She was favored. Now, it's interesting, the word, the Greek word, when you look at that with, um, compare that with like Old Testament wording, is this, that this is the same description, favored as another important individual back in the book of Genesis. His name was Noah. In Noah, cha excuse me, in Noah chapter six. In Genesis chapter six, that's a great book. You should read it sometime. In Genesis chapter six, you read of Noah. And what does the Bible describe about Noah? That Noah found grace or favor in the sight of the Lord. That's the exact description of, of Mary. It's interesting. She's like another Noah. 
She's like a New Testament Noah. It's an amazing uh, analogy, that's uh, illusion that's given there. We also know another thing about her characteristic is that Mary had a servant's heart as under the Lord. She said when she heard the news, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it according to thy word. She had a servant's heart. She was a bond slave for Christ. We also notice that Mary, she had, she was really a model of faithfulness. Again, th this is all from Luke. Matthew, again, doesn't say a whole lot. But here's, what, going back to Matthew chapter 1 now, and we think of the five golden rings. Talk about the four ladies before Mary. When you compare Mary with the other women, think about this. Most of those ladies had a sexual scandal and were despised. Each of those women had a sexual scandal, except for Ruth, but even there, she was despised because she was a Moabite, okay? Now you contrast that, those four ladies with Mary, what's the difference? Mary was pure. She was a virgin. And she had to be. Why? Because she was there to fulfill God's plan of Isaiah 7, 14. Look with me carefully in Matthew 1, verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted as God with us. So again, she had to be pure. She had to be a virgin. Why? That she will fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy. God doesn't make mistakes. And Mary was the one that God chose for that occasion Therefore, she is highly favored and blessed among women. But it's interesting, even though that Mary is pure and innocent in this regard here with what God has called her to do, that Mary's pregnancy with Jesus was also a scandal. And she faced unjust criticism. We know that because Jesus himself in John, 4, uh, John 8, he was accused of being a son of fornication, being born of fornication. There was an accusation about that. Mary had to deal with that throughout her own life, that unfair criticism, okay? But what's the point of this? Let's bring it, what's the point of including Mary in such a way comparing it to the other ladies that are in this gene genealogy? You see here that the genealogy of David was filled with flawed women from whom God would work his miraculous plan. Did God use Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba? Absolutely he did in a great way. But when it came to selecting the woman who was to give birth to the Messiah, the son of David, God chose a chaste, godly woman, a woman like Noah, who stood out from among her contemporaries, a woman highly favored by God. Interesting when you see that parallel in regards to that. So we see here, let me kind of bring a couple of things to this, talking about this. Go back to verse 1, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. How does it start out here? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'll be honest with you. When you look at this passage right here, the genealogy, again, this verses right here, this is what, if you're honest with yourself, this is what you read when you have a hard time getting to sleep at night, right? But here's the deal. When you look at this, God is doing something miraculous here. When we see here that Jesus is described in two ways, the generation, the toldot of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the son of David because in him were the messianic prophecies made to David fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus being the son of Abraham, he is the fulfillment of the covenant promises to Abraham that in him shall all families, all nations, the world will be blessed. 
Jesus was the fulfillment of this. I have heard several times talking with Jewish friends and listening to testimonies how one key part of the New Testament was instrumental in for them understanding who Jesus was and then coming to faith in him. Uh, one of my professors that I, I've had in Israel, his name is Dr. Golan Broshi. Uh, he actually grew up in a kibbutz, uh, which is very atheistic. There's no belief in God, no nothing, very atheistic uh, group that was there. And uh, along the way, uh, he met someone actually from Korea, and they challenged him to read the Bible, and they gave him a New Testament. And he said, well, the only thing, he knew a couple of things about the New Testament. He said he knew, number one, that the Pope wrote it, okay? And that this would be basically be recipes of how to kill Jews, okay? That's what they would find in the New Testament. Beyond that, that's a large conception of the Jewish people when it comes to the New Testament. That's what they've been, been kind of brought up on, that, that idea. Uh, but anyways, but he says this, I started reading Matthew chapter one and I was amazed. The son of David, the son of Abraham, you can't get much more Jewish than that. Because that's everything in the Old Testament is bringing up to a major point. Who is going to fulfill that? And then it says, Abraham begot Isaac and Jacob said, oh, wait a minute, this is like our family tree. What's Jesus doing in our family tree? The light came on and God used that specific passage here to open his eyes to seeing who Jesus really was. Folks, a lot of times we, we go when we share the gospel, a lot of times we get to the cross, we do that. And by the way, that's good. We didn't include the cross. But sometimes we forget the, the complete story from Genesis to Revelation. There's a major story that's taking place and focused upon one person, that's Jesus the Messiah. Let the world turn to him. So when we look at now the genealogy of Jesus, we see from these five golden rings in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus that God can work through circumstances and the failures and difficulties of life to work out his plan of redemption. These names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, these names are not accidental, but are testimonies of the grace of God pointing us to the ultimate Redeemer, Jesus the Messiah. The purpose of his coming is evident by looking at his family tree. Look at that. Put some, don't look at this as a skeleton. Put some meat on it and figure out who these people are. That They're there for a reason to point us and lead us to the ultimate fulfillment of redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. You see here the purpose of his coming is evident by looking at his family tree as he would come to save his people from their sins. That's who Jesus came, why he came. By believing in Jesus by faith, you are then welcomed to his family tree. And you'll know where you've been, but guess what? You also know where you're going. And if you forget, just remember those five golden rings. <laughs>